Hello, and welcome to Darkly Lit. And we are re we've read something darker, a bit more, vi I guess, uh, description-wise, it's kind of stunning. But uh, first, let's introduce the hosts. I am your host, Kayla Berry. Who wants to go next? <laughs> I'm Chelsea. I make art. Occasionally. <laughs> and I read a lot of books. Um, go, go ahead, Sage. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm Sade, or Jesse Reyes. I am host and creator of The Witching Hour. I also do art sometimes. And I'm David, and I'll be Pinhead for this episode. <laughs> Time to play. If you haven't guessed by that, we had just read The Hellbound Heart by Clive Barker. And uh, I'm going to give a summary of that, um, just so... Just to give a refresher to those who read it or to those who have not read it but have seen the movie, you can now figure out, oh, so that's the difference between The Hellbound Heart and uh, why am I not thinking of the movie title? Hellraiser. Hellraiser. Um, so the, the book begins with Frank Cotton, who is a, basically the definition of a hedonist. He... Um, his goal is basically to experience every sensual pleasure known to mankind, and he gets bored of it and is like, well, what else is there to do? So he seeks supernatural influences and eventually finds a puzzle called the Le Marchant Configuration, which is uh, believed to be a portal to another dimension where uh, there is supposed to be this amazing carnal pleasure or sexual pleasure. pleasure. In other words... He thinks he's going to get the best sex of his life. Uh, so he obtains the box and then he's at his home in, Eng uh, in England and begins to open up the um, puzzle box and then discovers that these beans from it called Cenobites appear. And they do believe in extreme central pleasures. However, they don't know the difference between uh, pleasure or pain. So they basically take Frank back to be their plaything. So years pass, uh, Frank's brother Rory and his wife Julia move into that home and um, they're getting all set up and Julia starts to have memories of before her wedding to Rory that she had an affair with Frank and just misses and lusts over him. In time, Julia um, discovers, uh, discovers Frank, but now looking like hell without any skin and um he asked of her to kill other people to so he can restore his body basically julia kills people by seducing men and bringing them back to the home and murdering them and this helps frank gain back his skin meanwhile uh kirstie who is a friend of rory's and actually is in love with him starts to suspect that julia is having an affair and tries to capture her in the act Instead, she finds Frank, who then attempts to kill her, but she steals the puzzle box and then leaves the house where she collapses and then is taken to a hospital. Uh, while in the hospital, she solves the puzzle and then summons the Cenobites. They say, we're going to take you back to our place. But then she's like, no, I, I know about Frank. And they're like, Frank, he escaped our dimension. We need to get him. And she says, if I can give you Frank, you don't have to take me. And he's like, they said, they take the deal. So, Kiersey leads the Cenobites to Frank, and it turns out that 
Frank and Julia have just killed Rory, and Frank is now wearing Rory skin. This leads to some trouble, and Frank kills Julia, because Frank is an asshole. Um, <laughs> so, Kirsty uh, sees what's known as the engineer appear, and entrusts her to watch over the box while they take Frank back with them, and basically ends with her wondering if there are other puzzles and maybe f- try to find Rory. And that's oh. how it ends. Hmm. I'd say that's a fair summary. I mean, a lot happens in this novella um, mm-hmm. in a very small amount of time. And it's told, um, I mean, just the implications are there, but the the writing itself, like, is not... See, here we are just coming off of At the Mountains of Madness, and the writing itself is a lot, is very different, I find. Was At the Mountains of Madness shorter, like, like word count-wise? I... No. No. Okay. Well, <laughs> I mean, like... Even if it was, it did not feel shorter. Yeah, I was was just trying to make a point. Is if it's shorter or about the same length? Because reading the Mount of Madness felt like a way longer read than this one did. That I agree with you there. Um, I got through the thing is um, with this, it's a much easier read than Out of the Mm -hmm. Mountains of Madness. I found I flew through uh, the Hellbound Heart at a pretty good pace. Same. I think two weekends at work during my like hour lunch breaks. So. I'm actually now looking up the word count to see if Mountains of Madness is longer than um, uh, Hellbound Heart. Uh, Mountains of Madness is actually 40,000 words, about 40,000. Uh, Hellbound Heart is uh, actually bigger. It's, uh, oh, 50, whoa, what? It's, it's 50,000. Uh, 50, so it's about 10,000 more words. Okay. Just a little bit then. Because I, I think <laughs> this one had more chapters. Yeah, it did. So How is that wondering. possible? How is this possible? <laughs> well, it definitely was an easier read. Mm-hmm. Like the thing about Clive Barker's writing, it is very simple to understand and is very clear cut, which is uh, which is pretty good, I must say, especially if you're going to describe something horrific or um, something in such detail. You know, he the, what I like about Barker's style that I kind of notice is he describes things in detail, but I feel like um, there's almost a there's an eloquence to the writing itself where it almost feels like he's reciting more almost a like a fable or a fairy tale at times, even though it's like in a modern day. Mm. Like there's just a way the writing feels to me like he talks about he talk he talks in a lot of metaphors sometimes, like how the seasons bleed into each other and things like that. He gets very flowery sometimes. And it's like, yeah. And then uh, Julia murdered a dude and his blood went all over the floor. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the one thing about these characters, um, I, I almost want to say they're archetypal, but they don't feel archetypal. Uh, but it's like, but maybe it's... Mm. I feel like uh, re- after reading it, I don't think they have like archetypes, maybe a little bit, but I think more Clive Barker knew exactly the mold he had for each characters, and he very much kept them in those molds. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think the... Aside I think the... Oh, go ahead. Uh, well, aside from maybe Kirsty, a little who does like toughen up. Yeah, I think. Um, well, well Kirsty was my favorite character for because she's a character that actually changes during the course of the novel. Oh yeah, so they're probably the only one who does that. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I think the fascinating part is that most of the point of view is from the two villains, or rather, uh, Julia and Frank, mm-hmm. and they're just assholes. They're terrible people. 
They are but terrible people. I, but I kind of find that fascinating. The fact that we're following the point of view of not the hero. I mean, occasionally we hear from Kirstie's point of view, but it's mainly Frank and Julia's. But is Kirstie really, I mean, for initially, Kirstie is not necessarily our quote unquote protagonist. It's Julia. And you're kind of, at first, you're almost kind of led to feel sympathetic for Julia. Like, I feel like the writing is trying to make you feel sympathetic for Julia because she's like, she's trapped in this loveless marriage and she has these memories of Frank. And then, of course, that's when it gets it gets around to where she finds Frank after um, after Rory cuts his hand and bleeds on the floor of the, the room where he performed the ritual for Frank performed the ritual. And then it's like, oh, yeah, I need to be more complete. And Julia's like, hey, I'm on this. And then she goes and kills a bunch of people. <laughs> but then. But then not only that, there is still a struggle there. Like they still, he still gives her a personality where it's like, she's like, okay, can I do this? Okay, maybe I can do this. And she's like, how much do I want to be with Frank? I love him. I, I find it fascinating though, because when she describes uh, her or when it's uh, described her, her, when she makes love to Frank or has sex with Frank, she says it wasn't that great. Like if you remember, it says she didn't, uh, she didn't have an orgasm. It was, but because of that moment, she fell in love with him. I, I was kind of surprised by that. Wait, wasn't it described in the book that it was like it had it was like aggressive and joyless, like rape? Wasn't it something like that? Yeah, it? that's the way they describe it. It was aggressive and joyless. So it's like, which I'm assuming means she didn't really have fun doing it, but it was just a different experience for her. Yeah, or I guess like I guess Rory was just so dull that this what was almost traumatic for her with Frank just see, was so much better because Rory is that dull of a person. And I, But then she got, like, addicted to that idea, I guess? Yeah, I think so. Like, I think she was a very misguided character, and I think she might have been my favorite character. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just because, uh, I don't know, I like the whole twisted love concept. And she was kind of, like... David was saying she was almost sympathetic and it's like you can tell she's misguided. She's just kind of like trying to be happy. And then even after she's killed these people, she was at least a little bit considerate about Rory because she was like, oh, well, what are we going to tell Rory? And like, you know, she was kind of like, okay, well, yeah, I want to be with Frank, but what do we do about Rory? And then finally, when we realize, oh, okay, Rory's dead. They took his skin. Then then we don't really <laughs> care for Julia anymore. She. <laughs> I don't know. I like, like how, the deal. Yeah, I like how that was presented to like Kirstie seeing Rory and then it's like something seems off. And then, I mean, I was able to guess. I'm like, wait, Frank took his skin. Oh, my God. Like, that was actually a surprise. Well, I saw it coming, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, I too. Do, but, it, but I like the fact that it was revealed in that way. Yeah. I didn't even remember that from the movie. But yeah, if you read because he starts talking about I need skin. Yeah, that, that was... Easy to predict, but um, I know Chelsea. You said you haven't seen the movie. I have not. Yeah. Um, for any listeners who have seen the movie and maybe not read the book, should we talk about just some of the quick differences, like the fact that uh, in the book, Kirsty is just a old friend of Frank's, and in the movie, uh, she's his daughter. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> David so hasn't. Seen David, have you seen the movie? Actually, I haven't seen the movie. Okay. Oh. Well, the, I mean, one thing I do know, um, I mean, w w let's focus on Kirsty first, but I definitely feel I, I have a point I want to bring up once we've kind of talked about that. So uh, like uh, go ahead about um, her as a daughter in the movie versus her as uh, 
uh, an old friend in the book? No, it's well, it's another movie difference thing. Okay. Movie uh, to book ratio, movie to book thing. Okay, so um, I mean, with Kirsty, I I'm not gonna lie, I actually do like the fact he's she's his daughter in the book because that feels more or movie. Oh, my goodness, that she's his daughter in the movie. Um, that is actually an aspect that I did like that was changed mm-hmm. because there's a cl- more of a closeness there, and it does it would make sense for her to, especially in a movie form, to why she would want to look at this, why she want to search for this. But in the same breath, none of these characters are supposed to be perfect, and having Kirsty be a friend in the book makes it seem like no, she's doing this mainly because of her own wants and desires she decides she decides to see what julia is doing because she still is in love with rory where with kirsty it's just by the fact like she actually does care about her dad so that's more of a self or in the movie it's that's more of a selfless reason and i think all the main all these four characters are supposed to be shown as like imperfect characters not one is better than the other and that makes it a bit more complex. I'll agree there. I mean, mm-hmm. in terms of like character traits and flaws, but I mean, I mean, Kirsty and Roy are clearly better than Frank and Julia in just that they don't fucking kill a bunch of people. No, I know. <laughs> I think in for me, the impression that I got in the book, Kirsty was just this kind of still had feelings for Frank, like old friend. Um, so she's just being a really good old friend is the impression that I got. Not that she was like hoping she could get with Rory if she caught Julia. But I do like in the the change that they did in the movie with Kirsty being the daughter cuz then she's just this concerned daughter for her dad who's suspecting her stepmother of cheating on her father. And then mm-hmm. also Rank's whole Rank's what Frank's whole <laughs> line of uh come to daddy is way creepier when it's her father's skin. Yeah, you know? that's true. That's like, that's oh like, yeah, he, he actually says that to. Uh, well, I know he's he still they keep the same line in the mm-hmm. uh, in both in the movie. Oh man, and that, that actually does amp up the creep factor. Yeah, I'll tell you that I'll tell you that one of the re- main reasons I haven't seen the movie is because I can't. I I have a really hard time with on screen gore, like really gratuitous on screen gore, and uh, well, I know Hellraiser's got that. It, <laughs> oh my god, when Frank comes back. And he's just like all gross. It's like, it's the most beautiful gore. I, <laughs> I, I, I think it's no, it's definitely well done. That was one thing I because I read the book before I saw the movie. And I was wondering how are they? I mean, the book goes into the descriptions of how he looks very like disturbingly and very well. So it's like, how are they going to show this? Like on film, and I think they handled it very well. Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. they handled it off. Those good old special effects that we miss. <laughs> as okay, I mean, as for uh, you, David, and you, Chelsea, what do you think of the descriptions? Because uh, I, I, I'm not going to lie, it's definitely based on like I think the horde kind of does come from how they are, how they look, or how uh, the gore is described. Yeah, I'm gonna. Hmm. Actually, I'm going to give Chelsea the floor on this one. Oh, geez. Chelsea's our gore expert. She is. <laughs> That's the reason. I'm not the person to come to about it. But, I mean, speaking as someone who is squeamish, I can I can offer up my my thoughts as well. But I figured let's uh, – I think Chelsea's got more of a – more positive things to say, I would say. 
I I honestly just really liked how it was written. Like, um, I know the first time I read it and I was planning on taking notes, like, I just ended up reading the whole thing without writing anything down. <laughs> um, Wait, you read it twice? Yeah. Oh, wow. Bravo. <laughs> but yeah, I, I really like the descriptions in it. I mean, does it serve up to your level of gore or does it does it seem too violent or not violent enough or? I mean, like, I, I feel like things are uh, not overly described, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and that's a good thing, although that's just that's just my opinion. That's just my two cents. I, I, um, kinda, I agree with you, though. <laughs> that's like, it's, it's just the perfect amount to get your imagination going. Yeah, yeah. That, mm-hmm. that to me was the biggest thing, because I, I think it, it could have easily, I mean, and this is true, especially of a lot of horror, you could easily go, I'm going to go way over the top in describing this. Mm-hmm. I think, again, this goes with how solid a writer Clive Barker is, because uh, he gets the point across without having to, like, hammer anything home, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I feel like he can he can use... I, I talked about kind of how I felt some of the language is a little flowery, and, and I don't, don't mean that in a bad way. There's some there's some poetic angles to what he's writing about, and when he's describing the way people even even really grotesque stuff, it's described in a way that almost has a has an older quality to it. Uh, the writing, I think, it has a bit of a poetry quality to it. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I think that works, that's why it's good because he he doesn't have to be like and there was this you know he he can he describes the way he especially when describing frank it's like just he like talks about him almost like he's half formed or he's looks like he's got a consistency of jelly and it's like there's some bits in there that are pretty gross but it didn't bother me because it was written well and i could you i could I, the horror came across but it's not like when, when gore is done well i appreciate it and this is one of those situations where especially like reading it never bothers me reading about it never bothers me too much but i mean there are certain things that do i mean anybody who's listened to the stuff i do in other podcasts knows that i can certain things really get to me and um (laughs) none of those none of those things in particular came up here but there was some bar parts i was still just like oh that's 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 gnarly but i still enjoyed it i still enjoyed the level of restraint but also not restraint that clive barker has going into it I think it was very tasteful here, the gore, <laughs> where yeah. it was, there was enough description that you got a good image of what he was trying to convey, and then that's what he left you with. Like, you weren't overwhelmed by it. You didn't have to go into minutia. Yeah. 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 There were actually... So I, I bought a copy uh, for my Kindle, and uh, that's where I read it, and it lets me highlight little phrases to look at later so there was a couple wordings that he used that i actually got to me in one way or another mm-hmm. the first one was early on when frank first summons the cenobites and there was a phrase like describing his fear for them that made his bowels ache to be voided and so i wrote a little note oh. that, like is this just a fancy way to say he felt like he was gonna shit himself <laughs> <laughs> it's a very nice way of saying it yeah yeah, yeah it is yeah. And then, so, like Chelsea, I, I love gore. Um, it seldom ever, like, disturbs me or grosses me out. But there was one line in this book that just, like, made me shudder and kind of gag. His, uh, his tongue frisking her teeth for cavities. Yeah. Oh. Just, like, ugh. So, a- so props to Clive Barker, because he, he made me gag. That, that Such an 
unromantic phrase. I know. And that was, it was between Julia and Frank, right? When he, yeah. she was describing, like, their uh, affair. I, thought, I think that was where it was, wasn't it? Was, I'm pretty sure that's where it I was. Think so. I thought it was. No, well, no, no, no. I thought it was with one of the men that she brought in to kill. Oh, no, you're right. Yeah. It was one of the men that she killed. Yeah. Because that you know, it would be even more disturbing if I could, if there was a, if she, uh, to see her making out with half-formed Frank. You know, with essentially meat and gristle Frank. <laughs> that I would be horrifying. I was waiting for it to happen. I was like, I wonder. I was kind of expecting it, too. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't it actually happen in the movie? Like, she actually does kiss half-born Frank. Oh, no. I, I mean, he, I mean, he, probably. I, 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 if I recall, he, it's, it's like he's basically a human, but he doesn't have the skin yet. And then she kisses him when he's skinless. Ugh. But anyway, uh, actually, the one description I really liked um, was like when the Cenobites uh, basically make Frank feel everything all at once. And it's just a sensory overload for him. And it's just a great description where it's like he felt pain, but then he also felt pleasure. And then actually it led to him suddenly like masturbating because he was turned on. But at the same time, just like Every sense you could think of, he was feeling, and it's just an awful thing to hear. It, it almost sounds, and it's especially for someone who's was who's a hedonist and just desires to feel stuff. This is basically getting a taste of his own medicine. You know, I, I thought about the common thread that a lot of the characters in this book have, and uh, a lot of them. There's, there's this the whole the whole thing is this all these. Uh, all these these four characters have a sense of longing to them. They all want to feel something, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and they're all lacking that. Rory and Julia are you know can't. Rory you know wants to feel connected to Julia. Julia wants to you know bang Frank uh, and feel that, <laughs> that sensation again. Frank just wants to not have to be tortured by the Cenobites anymore. And Kirsty, well, Kirsty just wants to like she wants she wants Rory. She wants Rory. And she wants to feel maybe like there's a like she belongs. I don't know. It's interesting. Like she's she's been accepted and loved. Um, and it's funny because like as much as this book is like you know as much as it delved into Hellraiser, I I'm meaning to bring this up. The Cenobites actually factor into the book very little. They do. They're in the beginning and they're at the near the end, but um, and they're they're described in a really eerie way, and they're they're the catalysts of everything. But they don't. They're not really the forces of change in the book. They just kind of, they're there and they just, things happen. And then all the other characters are what drive the plot forward, which was interesting because that's not what I expected coming into the book necessarily. Knowing what I know about Hellraiser just from a pop culture perspective, I was like, I was expecting to be be a lot more uh, pinhead and (laughs) there was barely any pinhead. I'm like, actually, that's kind of cool. I feel like all the, all the Cenobites, have about the same amount of like story time, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. No, I um, saw the movie first like, forever ago, and I was expecting a lot more stuff with the Cenobites, and yeah, they just kind of pop in and out. That's it. Yeah, it's true. Actually, in the first movie, they're not in it as much either. I think they're supposed to be in it in the other sequels, if I recall. Right, and plus, you know, like they're 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 so iconic, and from the movies, especially, you know. You know, there's Doug, there's Doug Bradley as uh, as Pinhead, and um, it's interesting because I think in the book, uh, the Cenobite that that particular Cenobite is described as being feminine or be having a female voice, but mm-hmm. and it's hard to tell with them because they're so scarified and 
and flayed that they uh it's hard to identify what they they are necessarily and i like that they're the um, <clears throat> actually this is for i have a this is an honest like question just out of ignorance is the engineer in the movie any of the movies i've only seen the first one i don't think the engineer is in it i don't think so either there's quite a few things that get added to the movie like there's doesn't like uh, Kirsty kind of step into their world for a bit, and she gets chased by that monster thing. She does actually. The ending, the end, has yeah, the, a, yeah, has the ending a lot has a, mm-hmm. the ending has a lot of Cenobites. She basically goes into a battle between her and the Cenobites and trying to keep them back in their realm. Oh, cool. Yeah. But no engineer, no. Is it a world made of... I really love the description. When I, my, Some of my favorite parts of the book, and I, I'm a lover of atmosphere in, in books in particular, in horror, and I loved all the build-up to whenever they showed up, the, the bell ringing and the, the like reality kind of fading and this impression of like thousands of fluttering black birds being sort of making up mm-hmm. the existence on the other side. I thought that was, that was... Those were some of my favorite parts, personally. But the reason I ask about the engineer is I thought the whole concept of the engineer just being the one that you can't really see very well because it's he's gl- it's glowing white hot and and uh, especially that last bit where um, the engineer is sitting there wearing Julia's wedding dress and whole or what I presume is it's that and is holding Julia's head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know why you find that amusing. Well, I, I, I find it amusing because, uh, well, for some reason, you, the, you, it's not what you'd, you'd think, Kayla. The first thing that crossed my mind, weirdly, was Beetlejuice. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, you know? Okay, <laughs> I see The whole wedding that. thing. I see that. Yeah. But yeah, like, I mean, what are we, uh, what's our, what are our impressions of the Cenobites from, from the book, I guess? It's like, because I, I, I thought they were cool, but again, I don't know if, I don't think they, I, I got a different impression from pop culture. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I think. Sorry. Oh, oh, oh no, go ahead. <laughs> uh, I kind of wish I hadn't seen the movie uh, prior to reading this because I think I would have imagined the Cenobites differently because I just kept envisioning what I saw in the movie. And I think I would have enjoyed the whole book more because I kept wanting to envision the characters what I remember from the movie. Um, I think I would have like thought of everyone a little bit differently, even though they're more or less the same. In the mm-hmm. movie? I don't know. Um, but this... I don't know. The Cenobites kind of were lackluster for me. Maybe just because I already had this preconceived vision from the movie. See, where that didn't bother me because I read the book before I saw the movie. So, mm-hmm. I mean, and I always have theories like, should you read the book before you see the movie? Mm-hmm. And it's... N- honestly, I don't think it's always true. Like, I regret reading The Shining before I saw The Shining. That is, it's a weird thing, but I do regret it. But with this one, if you're going to see Hellraiser and want to read the book as well, I'd read the book before you see the movie. That That's just my opinion. I will second it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were going to say something, Chelsea? Oh, um, yeah, no. Uh, like, I've never seen the movie. Like, I've seen pictures of Pinhead, but I've never actually um, seen or been exposed to the movie. Uh, so for me, like the Cenobites, um, they they were like a, uh, they reminded me of like the God Hands from Berserk in a way, mm, but with a yeah. name that really makes me think of Cinnabon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds delicious now. 
I like the impression that comes across that they're not even necessarily demons. They're not really, I don't know if they're associated. I don't know if they're supposed to be demons. They're just like sensations. I, I don't think they are. I, I think they're just like beings from an alternate dimension that are just like, yeah, you, you, you rang. <laughs> yeah. They can't cross over unless someone solves the, the puzzle. And then like, hey, you want us to make you feel all this stuff? Because we under we have this this cool idea. Check it out. Everything sucks, but it's also great. Although, like, when, um, who was it? Christy. When, like, Christy figured it out in the hospital, they didn't really offer her their, um, a yes or no. They were just like, hey, you're coming with us. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm remembering I, right. Yeah, that, yeah, you're right. I think, basically, that was them saying, we just lost our, our um, sex slave. We're pissed, so we'll just take anybody. So, I actually, uh, I have some... Uh, suggestions of what to discuss from some listeners. Thank you guys very much. Um, from Facebook, uh, Dakota K. Miller uh, asked to for us to discuss the theme of punishment and horror, specifically punishment for sexuality. And are Frank and Julia punished for their transgressions? Well, I think, especially in like slasher films, there's always this this uh, theme of like you know the promiscuous characters are going to be the first ones to go. Like you don't have sex in a horror movie because then you you know you'll get offed. Um, Frank for sure is definitely being punished. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of think of Julia as more of like a tragic victim. She's naive, if anything. Yeah, I don't know. But um, she she also kind of got what she deserves. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I think again, for Frank, he got he's being punished definitely for just everything in his life. Where Julia was kind of more just a tragic accident who <laughs> could have been redeemed, maybe. No, probably not. <laughs> not after she killed, like, so I don't know. We don't do we ever find out actually how many people she killed? Like, I, I know it wasn't like a lot, I think it was only a few. At least three. At least three like three people. guys and then Rory, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Frank technically killed the last one because he, the last one started to attack her. And then I'm assuming oh. that Frank killed Rory since they talked about like flaying his skin off. Yep. No, but here's the thing. Um, they're not the only ones that are punished in the book. I mean, Rory hasn't done anything, but he still dies at the end. Is he really being punished then or he's, is he just another victim? Exactly. That's what I'm wondering. And then uh, Kirsty gets through. And honestly, if we're going to talk about sexuality, she's lusting over a married man. I mean, it's not shown across that way, but she, I mean, she's lusting over a married man. And I, she, she gets to live in the end. And actually, there's a hope of her going to go find Rory. How is it she gets away with uh, her actions rather than uh, Frank, Julia, and Rory? all get punished in the end. Uh, I mean, like, Julia never really got the chance. Julia. Christy. Christy, right? <laughs> Kirsty. But, like, she never really got the chance to act on her desires. She was, like, too wrapped up in herself to really do so with Rory. But, like, I, I also feel, like, usually stereotypically, like, um, in, in movies or, like, in books, when someone's killed for their sexuality or for punishment for their sexuality, they don't usually get any other character traits. Whereas, like, in this, they're very clearly made out to be terrible people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, the other thing, too, is, is it, is it really a pun? Are they really being punished for their transgressions? I mean, narratively, maybe, yes. But 
from a story standpoint, the Cenobites don't see. I, I don't. I don't feel like the Cenobites see yeah, punishment. They don't, they don't have the same morality that we do. So like, and plus for them, like they don't view this kind of stuff as a punishment. They're just like, yeah, let us, you know, like teach you how to enjoy things by ripping yeah, you, your flesh off. I guess you summoned us. We're going to ex- we're going to expose you to the same things we're exposed to because clearly you call this for a reason. You want to experience these sensations, and we will we will do that for you, whether you like it or not. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's the interesting part. It's the miscommunication that he thinks, oh, this other dimension is going to see pleasure the way I see pleasure. I'm going to fall into a sea of naked women. That's this dimension. <laughs> and then he falls into a sea of hooks and chains. And <laughs> Now, uh, this is a next uh, uh, question by Alex Hatzberger, and this was from Facebook. Actually, David brought this up a little earlier. Clive Barker's work often incorporates fairy story ideas, supernatural creatures with morality and drive that is alien to humans. Don't bargain with supernaturals unless you have no other choice, etc. Do you think that his writing in this show shows a modern take on classic fairy? Just letting you know, this is the only Clive Barker story I've ever read. So I I don't know about any of you guys. Uh, the only other one that I've read is uh, Thief of Always, which is about this kid named Harvey who is bored with with life, with you know, being a kid. And he, he goes off to this very supernatural house where he can just be a kid and do whatever the fuck he wants. And there's like supernatural entities that just kind of run the house. That's, that's most of what I remember from it. It's been a really long time. I read it in middle school. Um but there it was also kind of like, oh, you know, you made a deal with these supernaturals and it backfires on you because there's this, you know, secret motive that they have. Yeah, I, I think this is more like like modern fairy tales, very dark modern fairy tales. I, it's kind of like... Well, uh, a lot of fairy tales were pretty dark anyway, mm-hmm. when you think about it. And people were punished for sexual transgressions a lot in fairy tales. Here's another way to look at it. Um, uh, it's very Faustian. Very, it is definitely Faustian. Like, it does play with the idea of, I'm going to ask this supernatural being, aka the devil or whatever, for something that I really want, but it's going to... It's going to backfire. It's going to backfire. But now, in this case, usually, uh, it's in, what's the interesting part is, this is after the Faustian deal has been made, and... There really was no benefit from the Faustian deal, at least not for Frank. No, no. But then not only that, it's so usually with a Faustian story, it's person makes a deal. They realize, oh, it's not what it's cracked up to be. And they have to suffer the consequences. In this case, this is basically it's it's, again, a twist on the idea. What happens if a person escapes a Faustian deal? And what are the consequences of that? Maybe that's that's actually not a bad way to give a modern take on, like, a, uh, as uh, Alex describes it, a fairy story. Hmm. Do you have any thoughts, Chelsea? Um, yeah, uh, for me, like, this, it, it felt less like a fairy tale to me and more like a Greek tragedy. Oh. Um, just because nobody really got what they wanted. In uh, fairy tales, I usually, um, I, I feel, have a bit of a different setup than this uh, story did. Okay, you, uh, you you actually bring a good point. Because, I, I mean, yeah. I, brought up, I brought up earlier, like, nobody gets what they want in the end. I feel like, in a lot of ways, the Cenobites kind of represent 
could potentially represent the way people used to look at fairies as something to be feared. You know, there's these these entities that you can barely understand that have different concepts of the world. These are like they they're 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 to be placated and and feared, but also not. But they're not inherently evil per se. They're just they're just different. It's anyway. I don't know. I just uh, I I, I kind of have to. I I feel like when Alex asked, "Do you think this writing shows a modern take on a classic fairy story?" I'd say I kind of agree with with Alex on that one personally. But that's that's where I stand. But I I have a, I kind of agree with Chelsea. It doesn't feel it feels less like a fairy tale, and but it is a classic. T- it's a modern take on something classic. That's for right. sure. Thematically, it feels. I mean, th- th- thematically and also through the writing, it has the the fairy the fairy story aspect to it. But I also agree with Chelsea that I think it does read more like a tragedy because mm-hmm. most everyone dies in it, except Kirsty, because you know <laughs> every Greek tragedy has its. Um, has its survivor. Every uh, Shakespeare play has its um, uh, Horatio. So, you know, the one character that everybody likes and still lives in the end. But it's not <laughs> right. necessarily the main character. Because Kirstie wasn't necessarily the main character up until the very last part. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that actually is fascinating. Like, we're really just following, I mean, kind of Rory, but I, I guess I would say four different people. And we're hearing four different sides of a story. I was I was gonna say that that once you get to the actual characters, uh, uh, Barker's um, prose kind of shifts from like a close third person to kind of close third person, but jumping to different perspectives. Like he doesn't have a chapter break and go like, okay, we're gonna focus on this character for a while. It'll shift to, to so we can hear. It's more omniscient. So you can move and hear, you know, it'll be like Kirsty was at the door. You're hearing kind of what Kirsty's thinking from a third person perspective. And then immediately in the same scene, you shift to Julia and you hear Julia and you kind of have a sense of what Julia is thinking and what Julia is feeling as he's describing it. And I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. There was even the part where uh, when Rory calls Kirsty to be like, hey, something's going on with Julia. Can you, you know, talk to her? Maybe we had a conversation of of. Uh, Frank and Julia that's like pretty much overlaid on top of that. So right. We're reading both both dot both conversations at the same time. I'd forgotten about that bit, but that yeah. was really interesting. Mm-hmm. I think for me the the book kind of breaks up into maybe three parts where like we at first we're mostly following Frank and then Julia and then we finish with Kirsty and we're just kinda seeing Rory from their perspectives. It's kinda how I feel the book was. If that makes sense to you guys. And no, that sounds that sounds I I'd agree with you there too. That sounds about accurate. And then we got one more from Beth Morton. She tweeted this. I'd love to hear how you think Barker's prose compares to Lovecraft's. Oh boy. <laughs> it's better. <laughs> yeah, I, I like Barker's more. Me too. Same. And I know there's a lot of people out there who'd be like, how dare you? It's the economy of the words and actually again. He doesn't describe everything in excruciating detail like like Lovecraft does, and that works fine in some cases, especially in the case of when we, as we talked about in the Mountains of Madness, you were dealing with an academic who's writing this. Mm-hmm. This is an omniscient narrator who is telling us about the situation and is mostly and is framed as a storyteller first and foremost. One thing I will say for to, for Clive Barker's credit is he doesn't repeat himself all the freaking time. <laughs> Once again, do I look upon the Cyclopean ruins and I'm like, oh, God. I think um, maybe the one thing I will give 
Lovecraft for, and but this is just Lovecraft in general. He did develop the idea of um, cosmic horror. He's the one that basically fathered that. And if it weren't for him for that, we probably wouldn't have the Hellbound Heart. True, but also Asian paintings. I don't know. <laughs> in terms of writing, yes, I like Clive Barker's more, but I we can't deny oh. the fact that Lovecraft is definitely an influence due to his world building. And that's not me discrediting Lovecraft at all. I'm just saying, I, I as I've said before, I love Lovecraft stories. I love his world building. I'm just not as big a fan of his prose as I am of Barker's prose. Mm-hmm. I think that sums it up really well. <laughs> is there any, like, uh, last-minute things you want to throw in there, guys? Like, um, about uh, the Hellbound Heart, or do you think we've Who's your Cenobite hu- waifu slash husbando? <laughs> <laughs> oh, totally the engineer, man. <laughs> the engineer is hot. Yeah. White hot. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm sorry. I derailed this so hard. <laughs> no, this is, you're fine. Don't worry. We should probably introduce what our next story will be then for the month of August. Yes. So our next story is going to be The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. For once, we're actually going to start with a short story. Um, It's going to be a busy month for us. We're actually all are going to be meeting up for a midsummer scream um, at the end of the month. Um, So, yay, that'll be fun. And then David and I will be at Comic-Con. So we figured, why not do a short story that's in the public domain and anybody can read it. And it's an easy to read, but still has a lot to analyze and has depth uh, plug the episode that you did for the yellow wallpaper? I think I uh, I did. did this was one I I uh, adapted for Midnight Marinara. And it's more it's more or less the entire story. The The only part I even remotely changed was the ending. And that's all, only a few words missing. So you're going to get straight out the story if you just listen to that episode. Uh, that's all I'll say about it for now. So if you want to listen to that one, it is in the... Uh, Midnight Marinara Archives. You can look it up if you want to listen to the story and uh, get a perspective on that. Uh, I do advise reading it, though. It is like it is in the public domain. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we'll put links to both the story and to David's episode in our show notes for this episode, too. It's one of the it's one of the few episodes where uh, it's, it's I say it's an adaptation, but more or less it is a sort of an audiobook of the story. And I had uh, I was very fortunate to have uh, Marissa. Uh, do the voice of the protagonist in that. And she did a fantastic job. Uh, Mostly I just like the story. I just present the story as it is and just add a little atmosphere to it. Uh, So thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Darkly Lit. Uh, You can find our first episode and everything about us at our website, darklylitpodcast.com or creativehorror.com. We're on Twitter at darklylitpod, as well as Facebook under the same name. So check us out. And check out The Witching Hour and Midnight Marinara and Chelsea Comer's soon-to-come Patreon page. Actually, Chelsea, do you want to plug that? Because that comes out the same day as this episode. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, look the link. Uh, it will be patreon.com slash cfcomer. I will be doing comics and illustrations and uh, process, process gifts and explanations. So if you're interested in any of that stuff, come check it out. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to uh, hear more from you soon. Blow the candles out, everybody. It's time to put the library to sleep for the night. <laughs>